This program features interviews with respected healthcare industry experts on current topics of substantial national importance. Your host for the program is David Intricasso, a DC-based healthcare policy analyst and researcher. We invite you to comment on the program by visiting thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Now, here's David. Welcome to the Healthcare Policy Podcast. I'm the host, David Intracasso. With me today to discuss reducing the healthcare industry's direct or scope one emissions via use of renewable energy resources, particularly solar, is Andrew McCalla, the co-founder and CEO of the Collective Energy Company. Andrew, welcome to the program. Thank you so much for having me. Mr. McCall's bio is, of course, posted on the podcast website. Briefly on background, listeners are where I recently posted two articles related to decarbonizing the healthcare industry. One I wrote and dated 930 regarding Inflation Reduction Act Renewable Energy Tax Credits that, again, are for the first time available to tax-exempt entities. And another I posted on November 18th, and in that article I argued for reforming 2016 CMS regulations that would permit the use of renewable energy for a provider's emergency power supply, or EPS. Listeners are also aware I've conducted well over 25 interviews to date concerning the health industry's substantial carbon footprint and the health harms and emissions contribute to the consequential disease burden disproportionately imposed on Medicare and Medicaid beneficiaries specifically and minority populations generally. I thought it therefore would be especially helpful for providers to discuss in some detail exactly what they should think about in considering developing renewable energy resources, how these resources, specifically solar plus storage microgrids, are today funded and constructed and resulting benefits. Again, with me to discuss all this is Collective Energy CEO Andrew McCalla. Before we begin, as a related aside, I'll quickly note yesterday, the National Academy of Medicine launched its quote-unquote climate community network that will attempt to address climate-related health inequities. National Academy of Medicine staff are presently looking for participants in two related or to staff two related advisory boards. Uh, when I post this audio, I will include a link to this NAM activity. So let's begin. Uh, Andrew, again, welcome. Uh, so let me start by asking you about, because I think this will provide some context, uh, asking about your organization's uh, purpose or mission. I will say your your brief phrase is, our dream is clear, reliable, reliable energy for all. But if you could tell us about uh, the goals of your group. Yeah, of course. Thank you. So I've worked for most of my adult career responding to natural disasters all over the world and also in our country. And I worked for an organization called Direct Relief that delivers medicine and medical supplies to to hospitals in 100 countries and in our country to community health centers, um, free clinics, FQHCs, lookalikes. These are community health centers that exist in poor communities and were set up during the Civil Rights Act in the 60s to provide medical care to uh, low-income and medically underserved people. Uh, and so I would go to these uh, medical facilities, these community health centers after a disaster to bring them medicine. And what I found time and time and time again, dating back to Hurricane Sandy, but then happening 
every subsequent disaster from hurricanes Dorian, Irma, Harvey, Florence, Michael, to wildfires in California, to floods, to tornadoes, you name it, their main issue was power. They had lost power. And without power, medical care can't be provided. We know that hospitals are required to have 96 hours of backup power. But these community health centers have 15,000 of them across the country have never been required to have backup power. And there's reasons for that I can talk about, but the, the short and long of it is I saw this problem too many times in my own work and decided, well, we can do something about this. This is a solvable problem. We can develop solar and battery microgrids localized clean energy microgrids on these community facilities, some of which have backup generators, most of them don't. And so our goal as a company, our number one goal is to prevent patients from dying because of power outages. But we want to do it in a way that also benefits the environment and helps these health centers actually save money on their power bills. Okay, thank you. Um... Yes, I, I will post your bio, as I noted, and, and I have to say, um, uh, pretty impressive. Beyond hurricanes, you note working typhoons in the Philippines, the Ebola crisis in West Africa, the Syrian refugee crisis, uh, and the list goes on and on, uh, both uh, here and abroad. Uh, your, your phrase on your website, and I'll just note it uh, to add, we believe everyone, no matter who they are, where they are, or where they live, or how much money they have, should have equal and re reliable access to health services. And then the key phrase here is, even when the power goes out. So, um, and the reality is, as you're uh, better aware than probably anybody, the power is going out with greater frequency. So that gets me to my next question. Um, relative to the demand for more reliable power, I noted in the November writing uh, that between 2018 and 2020, California had 50,000 blackouts that impacted uh, the data I read, 51 million. Now, keep in mind, California only has a population of, well, not only, but has a population of 39 million, which means 10 million of these people must have been in uh, suffering blackouts uh, from power generating California in neighboring states. So that's just an example of, 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 the demand for more reliable power. Um, could you provide, what, what's your experience relative uh, to beyond weather disasters explaining um, uh, the demand for more reliable power? Sure. Yeah, that's a great, that's a great setup. So our, as a country, we have a problem. We have an aging grid uh, that needs to be updated. There's a lot of reasons why it's not being and statistically, power outages are lasting longer, are more frequent, and affecting more people. That's across the country. Uh, we, in 2021, compared to 2020, there was 70% more power outages across our country. Um, it, it was funny, just yesterday, I, I spoke both to uh, health centers in Puerto Rico, and on the same day, I spoke to health centers live and in person in New Orleans. And I think Puerto Rico and Louisiana are the top two places for uh, where the power goes out the most in our country. 
uh, even more surprisingly than in California, but or Texas, as you mentioned, <laughs> right? Or Texas, yeah. correct? And and again, it's this is this is what leads people to die. Uh, and I don't want to sound extreme or or dark, but you mentioned Texas, the cold snap in Texas, the power loss is what killed fifty three people in Hurricane Maria in Puerto Rico. 64 people died from the hurricane itself, but the subsequent power outage that was the longest in U.S. history led to 3,000 people dying. Most of those, says the New England Journal of Medicine, were a result of power loss, uh, infrastructure collapse from power loss. And so we have a real problem in this country that doesn't have a plan to be solved for. In California alone, there's 180,000 people registered at home with at-home medical devices that they need power. And what happens to those people when they lose power at their home? Well, they now need to go somewhere where they can get power. And a community health center that are located in every community across our country are great places to have these uh, to have backup power, to be resilience hubs, to be places where people who are sick or poor or elderly uh, who need somewhere to go when the power goes out. And, you know, medical care, power, you lose power at your home and you're, norm, you know, you, you, you're not on medicine or a electronic device. It's an annoyance, um, but it becomes a real problem for people who are medically vulnerable. Um, and then, again, on the health center side, you can't provide healthcare without power. Uh, all of these health centers are now required to have electronic health records. So it's not like the old days when you you'd go into the doctor and a manila folder would come out and they'd look up your file and that's how they would intake you. They can't do that anymore. They need computers and servers and without power, you can't even see a patient, let alone the medical equipment that's needed the prescription drugs, 50% of all new prescription drugs coming out of our country today are going to require refrigeration. That's power. Um, on and on and on. So, you know, the, the problem statement that, I, that we say is uh, power is a reliable power is a prerequisite for healthcare, but power is getting less reliable. And so uh, we need to do something about it to to support these places. And there's a, there is a way to do it. That's, uh, that's the good news. And there's a cheap way to do it. You know, we, um, as, as Bill McKibben just said on a recent podcast, the cheapest way to create power now is to take a sheet of glass and point it at the sun. And so it's going to happen either way, but uh, it's just, there's a learning curve that we're trying to help folks understand how to go about it. Okay, thank you. Just you reminded me, I don't know if you know Scott Jacobson at Stanford, the amount of solar power available to us relative to the world demand for electricity is is, is just it's something like it's just massively far away and above uh, what's required. So it's not as if uh, solar power wouldn't cover uh, the, the, the global demand. And so let's move on. I mean, we, we could talk, you know, further about obviously lighting, ventilation, uh, HVAC, uh, um, sterilizing in- instruments. I mean, it's, it's pretty obvious. So let's just, just let me ask you, can you describe sort of a, a, a generic scenario? Um, I think that would be an efficient way 
So let's just so make up sort of a, a generic. You have a community health center. Um, you know they, they operate obviously out of some building. Um, they have a, a power reliability problem. Take take us through the steps of at least preliminarily thinking through how to do this. Sure. Um, and the good news is it's not actually <laughs> that hard. Um, it just it, it's somewhat new, and people um, people who are providing healthcare aren't thinking about it too much. But I'll I'll give you a real example of again just where I was in in New Orleans. Please, we helped we helped a community health center there called Crescent Care. Uh, it's an amazing organization. They're located in the, in a very poor part of the city of New Orleans. They have a sixty thousand square foot building. Um, provides every kind of health service you can imagine, mental health, um, preventative care, and maternal health, um, substance abuse, anything you can imagine. And, and they, can't, they don't turn anyone away who comes in their doors. Well, after Hurricane Ida, where they got hit um, badly in New Orleans, their diesel generator failed to start. Uh, once they could get it started, they couldn't get diesel because that's the absolute hardest thing to get in a disaster is fuel they even had a pre-supplied fuel contract with a company that was supposed to bring them fuel but they had evacuated the city because of the hurricane so they had to close their doors for six days lost nine hundred thousand dollars in revenue from spoiled medications lost patient visits not to mention the people that they couldn't provide care to who again are the poorest in Mm -hmm. our country so we went about, and they are now installing a clean energy microgrid on their building. They have a, a full rooftop full of solar panels. Um, it's it's a large building, and, and the solar's on the roof, so it's offsetting about half of their consumption. Energy, as you know, healthcare, uh, healthcare industry are big consumers of power. Um, buildings, healthcare buildings are use a lot of power, and so we try to get as much as we can on the roof of solar to offset that power consumption. And if we, if we can, we try to add um, carport structures, but you know, that's a cost benefit um, ratio. So we added solar panels on their roof. We got them a big battery now that's um, their first line of defense in an outage. The battery will power the critical loads in their building um, and also powers their, those critical loads every day which helps save them more money on energy costs. And now in the third position, sort of the third line of defense, they have a natural gas generator that we put in and to replace the diesel generator in case the battery dips too low on its power and it needs a, a recharge, that generator will then kick on and, and top up the battery, but then kick off and they're back up and running with the battery and the solar recharging it. So, this was again all it takes is um literally all we need from a health center to to go about this is their address and a few months of energy bills and then we can provide them with a screening to say okay here's what a system would cost here's how much it'll offset your energy consumption here's how big the battery needs to be to get you through a full day of an outage and now here's the many different ways you can think about uh, paying for this. So we provide that screening to them. And then um, once they want to move forward, we use a regional installer network across the country to install the systems. 
And then if uh, the health center wants us to, we can finance the systems through a power purchase agreement. So there's no upfront cost to them. All right. So thank you. So let's, let me ask some specific drill down on this, some specific questions. Um, so just on the structure, this is that you said a large building, I'm assuming with a flat roof and it has appropriate or good exposure, obviously to sunlight, yep. correct? So that's a prerequisite. Um, uh, let's, let's start with finance. Cause usually that's where people start. Um, and I will say as an aside, you implied this and we can get to this or be more explicit about it, that this has evolved to the point where it's almost turnkey and you, you implied that in your answer, but let's, we'll get to that. But you said on finance, it's possible, um, to finance this. So there's no out of pocket up front. What, what generally could you say a bit more about financing? And particularly, of course, the second question you'll get is related is what's the return on, on the investment or, or what's, the, how long does it take to recover, uh, the, the investment in developing this alternative source? Sure. So, yeah. And, and, and I, <laughs> I should say, I looked for a long time to see if I could not start this company because I, I thought there must be someone out there in the marketplace doing this. Um, and I just didn't see it being done for health centers in the way that I thought it should be being done. So our main three focus areas is, and you said turnkey, and that's right. It's one, the three things health centers don't have is the expertise or knowledge to know how to go about doing this. They don't know who to go talk to, to help them do it. And they often don't have the money to pay for it. Mm -hmm. So we're trying to take those three major barriers off the table. So they have one place to go to, to uh, learn about it, get the information they need, um, get it installed and get it financed. So they can focus on what they should be focused on, which is caring for their patients. So we're trying to do all that for them. Um, and we've now partnered with the National Association of Community Health Centers that oversees all 15,000 of these across the country so that they know who to come to. Um, and, and we're now uh, amazingly uh, being uh, inundated with uh, interest from health centers across the country who want to look into this. So um, that's the turnkey part of this. The financing part of this is... Um, you know, solar has proliferated in our country, as you well know, over the 30 years through the use of tax credits. Um, and so, uh, well, let's let's say up until the Inflation Reduction Act, the way that a nonprofit municipality, school, university would typically put solar on their building or campus was through a power purchase agreement. And that's that's where um, you have an investor who wants to take advantage of the tax credits that that nonprofit is not eligible for, finances the system for the tax credits, uh, which is 30%. They also get the depreciation of the, of the asset. This gets a little convoluted and complicated, but um, many people know about this structure. And then that entity then that got the solar on their building has now reduced power costs because they're producing much of their power through solar. So they're paying less to their electricity company because they're getting their power from the solar panels that were put on their building for them. 
So now they take that savings from their energy bill, from their electricity bill, and they use it to pay off the balance of the system after the tax credits and depreciation. So that's the structure we can do for health centers because they're all nonprofits. We have socially minded tax investors who believe in this mission and we're able to also get pretty low cost of, of debt from foundations. Uh, the Kresge Foundation just gave us um, a program related investment because they care about this issue of climate change and health. And so we can pay for the systems through the use of tax investors, low cost of debt, no upfront cost to the health center, and then they just pay it off through the savings they're now getting on their electric bill. And we try to do it for as short of a term as possible so that they can uh, own it within five years if they want to. Okay. So I, I in, in my writings, beyond – so just just let me ask you, what – and I realize, you know, this is hard to um, average because uh, the size of, of community health centers and providers vary. Their building sizes vary. Um, but is there, is there? can you answer this question that generally what amount of consumption uh, could an inst- uh, solar uh, with, with battery offset? I mean, how much – you said 50% for this for – this, uh, community health center in New Orleans. I wrote about a, a, a community health center in California that reduced their power consumption by 90% on a monthly basis and were able to sell uh, excess power back to PG&E for a fairly substantial amount of money credited to them annually. So I, I'm assuming it, it varies, but what would maybe the other way to phrase the question is what minimally can, can a community health center expect relative to the percent of power offset? Yeah, we're typically able to get um, anywhere from 40% up to 100% of their energy, uh, either on the roof or on a carport or both. And some of that depends on what their goals are. Sometimes the goal of the facility is truly to be 100% powered by the sun. And in that case, we figure out how best to do it. In other cases, they just say, what's the most cost-efficient way of getting some energy offsets and that's typically roofs, rooftop, but uh, yeah, we're able to get, you know, 30 to a hundred percent. And, and then typically the systems on average cost um, about four to $500,000 that again is paid for by someone else. Now let's just, uh, we did mention, uh, I mentioned uh, you reference as well, the IRA inflation reduction act tax credits. This is, um, these are available uh, to, as I noted, uh, tax-exempt entities. Um, so generally speaking, this is these are direct pay tax credits. Say so you're a nonprofit sure. community health center. Could you uh, flesh that out? Or Now, realizing we're waiting for guidance from the Treasury Department on how all these tax credits are to work exactly. So I'm asking you to somewhat to guess. Um, sure. And I've seen guesstimates that these tax credits could – offset a certain percent of the cost of installation. What's your understanding to date regarding IRA tax credits? Yeah, it's a huge change for, I mean, the IRA was obviously got lots of stuff in it. Uh, uh, My key focus is on the change to these benefits to nonprofits, which as I've said, for 30 years 
if a nonprofit were to put solar on their building, it would cost them 30% more than it would cost you or me as a homeowner or a business owner because they didn't pay taxes. That just changed. So now a nonprofit can get a 30% direct cash payment post-installation of the total cost of the system. So in lieu of taxes, that a tax credit, they'll get a cash payment. And that would come the following year when they file their right. 990. And then there's additional uh, bonus adders. If Correct. they're in a low, in- low income census track or an energy community, they can get you know close to 50%. So that's a huge... A huge game changer, and it's a game changer for nonprofits. Um, but again, it requires the nonprofit to have the money to pay for it up front and then wait for the rebate. Many of these community health centers are operating on pretty slim margins and don't have that $400,000 in the bank, so are still opting to go through a, a financed arrangement. Right, or they're or they have a credit rating problem. Right, there there there's there are other variables here. I, right. The the one way I've seen this explained, and I think this was actually in in Congressional Research Service uh, documents relative to the IRA specifics, and that is basically you recalculate your kilowatt hour price for energy. So if you're if you're if you're buying power from your local utility, you're paying obviously a kilowatt hour price, but under this arrangement. Um, you don't you don't have a monthly bill, right? Your the source of your energy is free, right? It's the sun, mm-hmm. so you're paying the installation costs for the hardware, uh, and you don't have again you're not getting a utility bill every month, um, so that your kilowatt hour price comparatively is drastically reduced. I mean that, I mean obviously you're you would agree. Yep, correct. Yeah, I mean you no longer have a bill for thirty years. I mean we're seeing. Health centers saving $80,000 or more a year compounded over 30 years. Uh, that's a huge, a huge benefit to a health center that has low margins. And it fixes their rate of power for the next 30 years. Whereas because they're now getting their power from the sun, and so they're not, um, they're not at the whim of the utility company where – Last I heard in California, PG&E upped their prices year over year by 20% last year due to some of this wildfire-caused um, damages they created. Right. You're, you're an island is the word right. Um, right. I see, or the word used analogously. Um, right. And, and let's not forget um, all the benefits to clinical care, more timely care. Obviously, that translates into higher quality care. Uh, greater access, uh, and and least of which, of course, they're not contributing to uh, a spoiling air quality, uh, which just exacerbates this population's health status uh, uh, further. So there's there's all the the clinical uh, uh, improvements resulting from uh, the provider, ironically, no longer fouling the air that their population couldn't afford to breathe in the first place. <laughs> Correct, and. And then bring an environmental justice lens on it, whereby these are these facilities, 65% of their patients are um, of ethnic minorities, um, mostly black and brown people. 90% are poor or low income. Mm-hmm. So where better, what better sites to provide clean energy to into these communities 
that for so long have suffered from the negative um, zoning laws, siting of fossil fuel plants, simply because they're poor and they're black and brown. These are the same facilities that these that these folks are going to go to. So in what better communities across our country to put in these clean energy microgrids? So as you, you know, the, the phrase you'll hear is fence line communities, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. Frequently. But let me ask, other than the, we, I mentioned the federal, uh, obviously the Inflation Reduction Act, um, the game changer. Um, since you work nationally, what's your sense of um, state efforts or to what extent are states actively engaging? Uh, because, of course, this, you know, states are large, depending on the wealth of the, of the state, of course, the state's co-share in the in medicaid costs right um so a state has a has a vest financial interest in this because presumably this would over time lower medicaid utilization and their medicaid spending uh what where do you see the state's role or to what extent are the states aware and playing you know that's a good question and it's a little bit of a harder one for you to answer what we know is you know the top 10 or 15 states that this is going to be easiest to do it in and those that are going to be harder to do it in. And I'd say it's almost as much of utility policy, net metering policy, uh, cost of energy as much as in those states, as much as, you know, um, state level uh, laws. Um, But so for us, we're basically saying, okay, let's let's at least start with the states we know that have good policies, good incentives, um, easy interconnect times. Um, and then, unfortunately, the, some of the places that need this the most, like Florida, like Texas, um, even even Louisiana, they're they're harder to do there and they're they have a lower return on investment because of some of the costs associated with it you know it's interesting you say that because i was going to go with the upside is here possibly that the states where it's where where this technology would work best you know obviously you know more sunshine right um are are the poor poor southern states I know you would think, but they're passing laws that the utilities mostly are passing laws to sort of um, prevent and or lower the lessen the financial benefits of, um, you know, the net metering policies. So getting lower value for the solar that you are generating, making it so it's it's much less of a financial benefit there than it would be in say California or Massachusetts um, where a a typical system might pay off in six years where in Florida might pay off in, you know, 16. Right. And I've read about relatively these state laws in Arizona because um, right. So, and of course, if if you can't have solar in Arizona, I don't know what other state you can do it in. (laughs) Um, In in any event, um, I'll, we're at about our time, so I'll leave you with just sort of one, if you could make just one, um, if you're, you're speaking to a provider, pretend you're speaking to a provider, what's, what's one last comment or overview comment you would leave them with? A healthcare provider? Yes. Um, honestly, I, I asked them to just envision, to, 
I literally sometimes say, close your eyes and just picture um, your health facility uh, without power and, and what you, you know, would still be able to, to do. And it's just come to the point where they can't provide care. And so all of the training they've gone through, all the systems in place at that health facility, all the medications they have, they become um, just null and void. And um, when they can sort of envision, and that's what haunts me is these dark um, buildings, they just become dark buildings. And there's, they have so much more value than that, but we need to make sure they can stay up and running. You know, the, the phrase that came to my mind was, and it's no pun intended, but it, it could be literally uh, meant, they're, they're, they're dead in the water. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's uh, obviously a sailing term uh, yep. formally, but that's effectively uh, their reality. So with that, Andrew, thank you so much for this overview. Um, I have to say this is pretty exciting, uh, particularly for the population uh, this benefit can serve. It's just, it's just fantastic news. So I wish you all the luck. Uh, maybe we'll come back and, and get an update in a year or so or two and see what progress has been made. But I wish you um, every success and thank you again. Thank you, David, for caring about this for many, many years. appreciate it. You have just heard another edition of the Healthcare Policy Podcast hosted by David Intricasso. To comment on this program or others, to see information about upcoming interviews, to suggest a program topic, or to hear an archive program, please visit our website, thehealthcarepolicypodcast.com. Thank you for listening, and please listen again soon.